0: If you drew a Venn diagram of the things that you're amazing at and the things that the world needs and the things that you want to do, there will be an intersection. And that's what you need to be doing.
1: Hello, and welcome to the IndieBau podcast, where we talk with founders, VCs, and scientists about what's exciting and interesting in biology and life sciences. I'm Gwen Cheney, your host and a partner at IndieBau New York we have the founder and managing partner of Civilization Ventures, Shahram, in the studio today, and he is our inaugural VC interviewer. So, Shahram, tell us about yourself and Civilization Ventures.
0: Great to uh, be with you, Gwen. Thank you for including me. I feel honored to be your inaugural VC on the IndieBio podcast. You guys have an amazing platform, and I've been so uh, privileged to interact with your team over the last four years and invest in a few of your companies. We are Civilization Ventures. I founded the fund in 2017, after about more than a decade as a career as an entrepreneur in the life sciences space myself. And the fund is really dedicated to investing in uh, founder-centric companies that really are trying to change the world in three important sectors. Where I thought in 2017, maybe less so today, there was really an uh, under-representation of founder-centric micro VCs, to mentor these early founders. And in fact, I call myself a mentor capitalist because capital really is a commodity and what's not a commodity is spending your time with someone and mentoring them. So the three sectors are synthetic biology, obviously a field you're very familiar with, Digital health and artificial intelligence in healthcare, as well as diagnostics and genomics.
1: Three of my favorite areas. So during <laughs> a quarantine, I actually took all sixteen courses in deep learning AI. Wow! Because I um... will
0: have you diligence some of our companies with us. That's <laughs> oh, I <fantastic>. definitely
1: will. <laughs> when I do diligence on AI companies, I just ask for the code, so I'll compile it myself. Oh, um, that, <laughs> so that's happy to help. And so I have to say I have really loved uh, interacting with every single member of your firm. Uh, you. Fantastic people! We just had our expo day, and every single person at your firm actually reached out and thanked us, which is uh, very unusual.
0: So That's I wanted to you. say, Thank you.
1: well, I wanted to see why are you doing what you're doing? Because it seems like every person at your firm is very passionate.
0: Thank you. No, I've been very fortunate uh, to work with two of my colleagues, Thamasip Khan, who's our vice president. He's a PhD from Stanford, and this is his first full-time job out of uh, the academic setting, and he's just got a remarkable background, and Zoya Khan. They have the same last name, but they're not related. Zoya joined as our analyst just a few months ago, and she's just been just rocking it at the platform. Such an amazing uh, contributor as well, and she, in fact, is really spearheading with Thamasip, our fellowship program, which is an academic uh, fellowship we have with the top universities around the world, from Stanford to Harvard to Oxford, and many other universities in between. So I've been privileged, but you know, to be honest, I don't think it was an accident. I, uh, when I was uh, hiring for these positions, I focused on uh, people that have an authentic passion for the life sciences. That actually is the same thing we look for in our founders. Um, not fly by night entrepreneurs or executives, but those that actually care about the sector we're in deeply. And also, um, one thing that we really inculcate in our team and look for in others as well is humility. Um, and, you know, combining your deep passion for this very important sector with extreme expertise and dedication to increasing expertise, but also matching that with humility, which I think is a cornerstone of uh, any professional endeavor, but specifically the venture capital uh, industry, in my humble opinion.
1: Um, I do have to say that um everybody that I've met from Civilization Ventures, they're extremely humble and you wouldn't guess, you know, the the, the backgrounds that they have until you stalk them on LinkedIn. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're very impressed um, Thank you very much. uh by how humble they are when you met them. That's kind of you. Um so and also I wanted to sort of really second what you said about um, you know, capital is plentiful these days. Yes. And um, you know, even I've uh, I've recommended one of our founders take a slightly lower cap from a really great investor just two weeks ago after demo day, just because that investor is more likely to add value and get them to Series A than another investor who is you know one million dollar higher in cap but unlikely to do uh, to be to be able to help. Um, so I wanted to dig into your background a little bit more because sure. you've worked in a lot of different areas. You were, Next Bio, you were at NextBio. You were at GraphDrive. And then you were at Argenics, which was a cancer therapeutics platform. Yes. Um, Do you want to talk about all the different areas that you've worked in and the experiences that you've had?
0: Sure. Uh, Thanks for asking, uh, Gwen. Of course, we don't have all day, so I'll try to (laughs) summarize it in a few minutes. Um, So I began my career as an attorney. I graduated from Harvard Law School and started at Wilson Sonsini, which is a well-known firm out here. And I did that at the peak, at the zenith of the dot-com bubble. I think you and I overlapped at Goldman at one point, so I had the privilege of working with some amazing folks over at Goldman Sachs, many of whom are now leaders in different industries, from the CEO of Nextdoor to the CEO of SoFi, and just a lot of just amazing people on the team, Um, and some of them I'm still quite closely associated with, but really that was my education in law and finance. You know, I don't have a technical degree. I was a pre-med for a year uh, at Pomona College and realized I didn't want to work. Yeah. Uh, My claim to fame, and and I was very passionate about biology both in high school and in college, but I also knew where my competitive advantage was and where my passion lie. And so my my passion really was on the business side working in that industry. And as soon as I was successful in paying off my educational loans, which is in today's world in America not trivial, um, I decided to take the risk that I've been looking to take for quite a few years. And so at the age of 32, I joined NextBio as a founding executive. This is a company out of Stanford out of the Stanford Genome Technology Center was with, with some extraordinary executives who were the core founders, uh, Ilya Cooper-Schmidt, uh, Saeed Akhtari, and uh, Mostafa Ronaghi, who went on to become the CTO of Illumina. And um, I was just privileged to work with that team and contribute on the business front. Uh, really spearhead our fundraising. We, we raised about 20 million for that company, grew the team from about three to 50 plus people. And eventually uh, we were acquired by Illumina and we became mm-hmm. Illuminas. Uh, software team, many of the leadership uh, team at Illumina came from NextBio, And that was just an amazing experience for me to to roll up my sleeves and understand operations. Because it's Mm -hmm. one thing, if you're a service provider, and it's very valuable by the way, the skills that I learned as an attorney, as an investment banker, were core and totally applicable to everything that I do today. But you don't really understand startups, in my opinion, unless you start a company or work in one yep. at the ground level. And that's what I thats what I did at NextBio, and subsequently at Graphdive, which is a software company that I uh, co-founded with another Stanford PhD, and we sold that to as another small startup. Um, and the company after that, um, actually I was a parallel entrepreneur since I uh, started Argenics and Graphdive at the same time on two coasts. Argenics, I was privileged to found with two MD PhDs from Harvard who were my classmates when I was in graduate school. They're actually brothers. Uh, We've now raised uh, nearly 100 million for that company. And for the first seven years, I was in charge of the business side. I've now uh, been out of the company for the last few years, which has freed up my time to do what I'm doing today. But Argenics is very novel. Uh, We have Mm -hmm. several drugs for cancer. The focus is oncology. We use microRNAs as molecular probes to understand Mm -hmm. cancer better. We, really, as my co-founders, were the scientists who developed this technology mm-hmm. out of Rockefeller University. And the first drug is an immunoncology drug. In fact, when the company was started in 2010, um, when we founded the company in 2010, immuno-oncology really wasn't a term, at least not one that I was familiar with. And now, of course, it kind of rolls off the tongue at every conference. So that company is in phase two trials for our first asset and in phase 1B trials for our second asset. So I've been through the entire journey, Gwen, of starting a company in therapeutics um, mastering uh, domain knowledge in something which was quite esoteric at the time, microRNAs, raising capital, hiring the whole team from medicinal chemists to uh, medical uh, officers to data scientists uh, and more, working with CROs. And that really gave me that, that seven years of you know painful scar tissue uh, gave me, I feel, the foundation for what I'm doing today. Because The idea of being a venture capitalist never crossed my mind, to be honest with you. Um, I was working as an entrepreneur. I really enjoyed it. But as I turned into my 40s, and I won't tell you how long ago that was, was a year or two ago, maybe maybe more, um, I was ready for a new chapter in my career. And I felt like I had done a lot of cool things as an entrepreneur. Of course, there's still much more to learn that I didn't learn. But for what I did learn, I felt um, that I had the ability to contribute to other founders and help them avoid some of the mistakes that I had made and help them... um, recapitulate some of the successes that I had had, and and that was the genesis of Civilization Ventures. And just a small note about the name Civilization. Mm -hmm. I come from Iran, I was born there. I'm a refugee, so my family fled Iran in 1982 after the revolution and during the war with Iraq. Uh, We actually fled through Afghanistan in the middle of their civil war. Of course, uh, top of mind today is American troops uh, pull out. Um, And we ended up in the United States, in Portland, Oregon, where I was raised and where I had Mm -hmm. some relatives. And uh, that background, the idea of being an immigrant, coming to the country and having to restart everything uh, is obviously more difficult for my father than it was for me since I was eight. That informs the way I approach life and it informs uh, the way I approach startups, the way I approach founders. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I believe humility should be one of the top three uh, virtues and principles of any professional, but specifically Mm -hmm. VC, Mm -hmm. because having been on the other side of the table, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're pitching venture capitalists, they hold a lot of power. Mm -hmm. You know, at least they think they do, but certainly Mm -hmm. ostensibly, they hold the wallets, the the Mm -hmm. pocketbook. And so, and I've been rejected, I mean, more times than I can count. I I try to tell entrepreneurs, I hope they're more successful than I was as an entrepreneur because our rejection rate for the companies that I raised capital for, and I raised over 100 million of capital for those companies uh, with the team, 98%. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you talk to 100 VCs, you're probably going to get rejected by 95, 97, 98 of them. And that's okay. It Mm -hmm. really takes just one to say yes that you want to take capital from. And so you have to have thick skin but also be humble and not Mm -hmm. take it personally. So. Yeah,
1: completely agree with you. Uh, I actually tell my uh, IndieVile founders 1%, just assume 1% hit rate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, really, what you said about civilization really resonates with me. So I moved with my folks uh, when I was age 11 to Mm -hmm. the US. And so uh, it was definitely a struggle. Uh, But, uh, you know, there's something to be said about uh, sort of the immigrant childhood, right? Mm -hmm. It definitely makes you a little bit tougher. Um, uh, So, one other thing that you mentioned was. Um, you know, when you joined, whether it was NextBio or Graphdive or Argenix,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how did you know to take a huge leap of faith to join each of these companies?
0: Well, NextBio was a company that I actually incorporated uh, because I was the outside um, lawyer to the two, uh, to the three, found, two founders when they started, and the third founder joined, and I joined uh, a few months later. Um, and so that was an easy one because I was already looking to join a life science company. And since I'm not the product person, I was looking to identify a product in the team that I wanted to work with. And uh, this was in 2004, 2005 when genomics was quite nascent. And the idea of you know genomics, data science, all these terms were not nearly as popular as they are today. Raising capital in 20, 2005 for this type of company was very difficult in comparison mm-hmm. to what it is today. And so that was an easy decision. I made the decision based on the people and the the science and the sector. Uh, Argenics also fell into my lap. You know, my uh, two classmates from uh, Harvard uh, grad school reached out to me, and they wanted a business co-founder. And I thought, well, who better to work with than these two amazing uh, brothers who are so intelligent and bright? So, And I did it while I was running my other company out here, which I founded with a Stanford PhD, whom I... Uh, Identified. I think Graph Dive probably will be my least successful company, and probably because I was the product person. You know, I think that when I turned forty, I realized, okay, uh, the time for games is over. And of course, I turned forty after I sold Graph Dive. But I realized there are some things that I'm world class in. I hope, I certainly, you know, I, I aspire to be. And there are some things that I will not aspire to be world class in because you know I just don't have the the core competence, interest, or passion. And one of those would be the kind of stuff that Steve Jobs did when he designed a product and and ran it. And I think you have to know yourself. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a little bit harder when you're 20 or 30 to know Mm -hmm. yourself, but by the time you're 40, you should know yourself pretty well. If you drew a Venn diagram of the things that you're amazing at Mm -hmm. and the things that the world needs and the things that um, uh, you want to do, there will be an intersection between what you want to do, what you're actually really good at and what the world needs and that's what you need to be doing. And that's what I did and that's why I started actually the fund. So Civilization Ventures really was my conclusion that everything in my career had been leading up to this point. Uh, All my entrepreneurial experiences, my finance background, my legal background, it all led to an understanding of startups at the foundational level from the documents involved in financing to the way you build products and teams to uh, everything in between, and specifically in the life sciences, and that's why I started this fund. But to be honest with you, graph Dive, Argenics, how, how or why did I start them? I'd like to interview myself from 10 years ago and, and, and maybe give myself some advice on what to do or what not to do, but sometimes you just do it because it's there, and it seems to fit your current thinking, and I would almost say don't overthink it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the genesis of this question is you know, uh, IndieBio, we're sort of at the top of the funnel, and yes. our admissions rate is 1.7%. So oh, wow. we see a lot of applicants. And so, uh, you know. I'm glad I didn't apply. <laughs> so, so I mean, we, we have to um, sort of be able to find that special something within the, you know, the first or second applicant calls, right? And so I'm always curious. You've had several wins. I'm always curious. What did you find in that first meeting or second meeting? What was it about the founders that made you decide to invest or to be fully on board as a co-founder?
0: Such a core question, Gwen, that goes to the heart of our profession and the mm-hmm. difference between, I mean obviously the venture profession has an enormous amount of luck associated with it. Yes. And it's a mistake to to think that although luck is a core part of a lot of outcomes, that it is actually the game, it's not. It, yeah. what, what you have to do is optimize for the things that aren't subject to luck. Mm-hmm. And that is an understanding of people, mm-hmm. understanding of technology, and an understanding of the sector. So mm-hmm. to your question, um, if I were interviewing people for IndieBio, or certainly when we uh, speak with founders for funding, we really focus on their authentic connection, and interest, and expertise in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, are they involved in, in in you know diagnostics because it's the flavor of the month with COVID-19, mm-hmm. or did this person spend five years in the lab at University of Pennsylvania working on a technology which is relevant to diagnostics, mm-hmm. uh, or gene editing, or whatever their mm-hmm. uh, sector focus is so that's critical we try not to have too many preconceived notions on what works or doesn't work in a founding team Mm -hmm. uh, but we do try to pay attention to the dynamics of the founders Mm -hmm. if there is more than one do they get along well? Are they interrupting each other or completing each other's sentences? Mm-hmm. You know, Are they spouses? I'm not gonna say that we'll never invest in spouses, but I do think it adds a layer of complexity mm-hmm. that one needs to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a great thing to invest in siblings that are co-founders. Sometimes it's a disaster, it just depends. Mm-hmm. So we try to really use a multivariate approach, uh, but it all comes down to the founders, their core expertise, uh, and why they're trying to do what they're doing because it's such a difficult journey, even under the best of circumstances. I'm putting aside the outliers where someone starts a company and they're acquired the next day. Mm-hmm. Or you know they start a company with some big, fancy, well-known East Coast VCs and they're public in the next month because they did a 300 million Series A. Okay, that's, that's not the game we play. We're not here to engineer financial outcomes yeah. before the product even is formulated. I'm not gonna mention companies, but some have been announced in the last week competing with some of my portfolio companies where you know the series A is a $300 million round and you have all the fancy VCs and the press releases saying you know we're going to change this and that and I'm like come on guys what you're doing is you're you have a big wallet you need to put the money somewhere and then all the rest is going to follow so mm-hmm. that that's a different game than the one that we play yeah we look at the founders to bring something to the table from day one not just take a billion dollars from us and you know kind of go public And if it all fails, the public investors are left holding the bag, Mm -hmm. which is what happens in biotech more times than not. Mm -hmm. So we try to take a long view towards technology, industries, founders, and really help them achieve their potential, but also help them develop products that people will use, Mm -hmm. that'll get to the finish line. I'm very confident, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but that the products we're developing at, the drugs we're developing at Argenix, I think they're gonna be approved. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The science is extremely strong. And by the way, if it does get approved, it's, not, it's no thanks to me. I mean, I'm not the scientist or the developer of the products, but it would it would be good luck if they get approved. But that's something to take pride in, mm-hmm. right? The fact that the science is so uh, solid that the development of the company was with a long-term view. I started Argenics with my co-founders in 2010. Mm-hmm. We're now sitting here in 2021,
1: mm-hmm. and no one
0: has seen an exit. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We're here to help patients. We're here to help uh, people live better lives. And if it takes 20 years, it takes 20 years.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to what you're saying when you're recruiting is you're finding you're looking for people that actually have a real passion for life sciences and biotech is that this business is not a quick win, quick get rich scheme type of sector. Not
0: at all. And I'll just mention some of our portfolio companies. You know, I was very fortunate to be the first angel investor in Omada Health back Mm -hmm. when I was. Uh, In my executive days, I had a a meager savings account that I put together after paying off my loans, and I didn't put a down purchase on a home or anything like that at the time. What did Uh, you
1: see in that team?
0: Well, actually, they were my friends. So uh, Adrian James, one of the co-founders of Omada Health, was a buddy of mine through a mutual friend. And when he decided to start Omada with uh, Sean Duffy, they actually reached out to me as a friend and said, hey, we're we're working at IDO, which ended up being kind of one of the sponsors of the company, thinking about spinning out this idea that takes the digital, um, that wants to digitize the diabetes prevention program that is uh, something innovated by the NIH. And they asked me for advice. And in the course of giving advice, I asked them if they would take a check to be kind of their starting check and they said yes. So I would credit that to having smart friends and wanting to support them and being lucky. The, the the word luck has to always enter the equation. We're lucky that we're sitting here live at the studio today. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of life is luck, but I think the key to being successful, in my humble opinion, is recognizing the environment that you find yourself in. And, and not ignoring all the good things around you, because all mm-hmm. of us have good things around us. Mm-hmm. No matter if we're sitting in Shanghai, or Tehran, Iran, or New York, or San Francisco, we have to just be awakened to it, mm-hmm. and, and realize, wow, these are resources available to me. Wow, my friends are really smart. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should invest in this one friend. That's been my mentality, is is really focusing on um, the blessings that are around me, and trying to, to be supportive of friends.
1: Mm-hmm. I think Shahram, you're very, you're very humble because it sounds like you've been lucky many, many times. So it's got to be more than luck. Thank Um, you. So I I, I I assure you, it's pure luck. Um, so there were a couple of sectors uh, where you were very early, right? Whether yes. it was genomics in 2003, 2004, digital yes. health in the early days, there wasn't a clear path to revenue right? or who's going to be the payer or how much is the paycheck. There's no CPT code. There's right. like, How were you able to write a personal check on that?
0: Right. Well, I'm not going to pretend that I had the prescience to think that OMADA's uh, digital therapeutics or not now what they term a digital care program was going to be reimbursed. Although it made sense for it to be reimbursed because the in-person diabetes uh, prevention program that the NIH uh, had sponsored, which was clinically validated, you know, it made sense for that to be reimbursed. So I thought it would be digitized eventually. But you have to invest ahead of the revenue. You have to generally invest ahead of validation. Otherwise, you're investing late. And of course, the role of venture, uh, the role of venture capitalists and mentor capitalists is to do that, take that risk. Mm -hmm. So I focused more on ideas, I focused more on where I thought the industry would have to end up Mm -hmm. and worked backwards. So for me, it just made logical sense that if there's a diabetes prevention program or DPP, Mm -hmm. which is being done in New York at the YMCA, Mm -hmm. if Sean and Adrian are telling me they want to digitize that and put it in the cloud and have a digital coach, I thought that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Of course the world will end up that way because the world is moving in that direction. So it was just logical Mm -hmm. you know, analytics and with respect to genomics in 2003, 2004, that actually goes back to high school. Uh, My first experiments in AP biology, working with Drosophila and just understanding genetics and realizing, of course, back then, we didn't foresee the Human Genome Project and um, the advancements with CRISPR and, and AI, but at least I didn't. But I just loved the idea of biology and the idea of genetics and genomics. And I don't think you have to be a genius to recognize how consequential that field is. Mm-hmm. It just took me a while to find my role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an easy one. I had, in fact, I had asked one of the co-founders at next bio years before I said next time you start or wanna start a company, since he was a scientist, let me know because currently I'm working at Goldman Sachs but I'd like to eventually be an entrepreneur and I kind of planted that seed in his head so they reached out to me. When they had an idea and they were about to start it, they reached out to me and I was fortunate to, to join. But by the way, it wasn't an, it, all these things look great in retrospect but it wasn't an easy journey. Uh, the funding was very difficult. Um, you have to have a lot of grit. You have to be very confident in yourself. So I, let me mention one thing, which is humility is not mutually inc- exclusive with confidence. Mm-hmm. You have to be extremely confident in yourself and what you can achieve mm-hmm. while maintaining the humility to know that you're mortal. you're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna be rejected, mm-hmm. and you're no better than anyone else, but you have to have that confidence in yourself. Otherwise, you can't take the first step, mm-hmm. much less the thousand steps you need to get to the finish line.
1: It it really is a fine balance and, you know, it's hard to strike that balance all the time. Um, how did you avoid, so you were, you, you did get into d- digital health, but how did you avoid wearables? And, you know, there are certain areas that definitely got overly funded Yeah, and you seem to have side swept th- uh, side stepped those.
0: Oh, that's a good observation. Uh, you've been doing your homework, um, anything that's going to compete with Apple head on uh, and by the way, there have been successful companies that did exit uh, Fitbit and One. And of course, they, they didn't exit long-term, but they had returns for their investors, but I, if, to me, it seemed obvious that the dominant platform players were going to maintain their dominance, and that mm-hmm. these many of these products, even though they had their day in the sun, were essentially features. I mean you know mm-hmm. counting steps that's obviously a feature of any smartphone or watch these days mm-hmm. so that but that was pretty obvious even when those companies were at their zenith, the mm-hmm. fitbits of the world and so that was not a difficult thing to avoid in my in my experience. There have been th- mistakes that I've made which i won't talk about but <laughs> <laughs> if you identify them, I will. But but yeah, it's not to say that I'm always prescient. But in this particular case, it a lot of these things seem like features, mm-hmm. and I thought you know you know it's very difficult to succeed. You have to have extraordinary product market fit. I think Mike Moritz once said from Sequoia that there are three things that matter in a startup: product, product, and product. Now <laughs> that might be more okay. true in software. Biology can be a little different. I would add people, or probably before that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I th- I still think wearables. Will have a very difficult competing with the bigger platform players.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have a rule of thumb of how to identify a feature versus.
0: I, I'm not that sophisticated. I have to just admit outright that for me, it's kind of like, you know, I don't want to say pedestrian logic, but I just try to work backwards from what mm-hmm. I. I mean, to a certain extent, Elon Musk, no, no way comparing myself to him, but when he decided to start SpaceX or fund it, mm-hmm. and the same with uh, Tesla. His calculus was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to get off of carbon fuels, electrical cars are the future. Okay, let me fund this company doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, again, no, drawing no parallels to the genius of Elon Musk, but for me looking at the universe is that simple Mm -hmm. you know obviously the future is genetic engineering Mm -hmm. for curative diseases i think it'll be genetic engineering for more than that which Mm -hmm. is something that we're not investing in now Mm -hmm. for obvious regulatory reasons but for me for example a company that we've invested into the c stage billion to one Mm -hmm. which is blitz scaling right now just Mm -hmm. crushing it going from non-invasive prenatal testing and ipt to oncology Mm -hmm. first of all the founder oh son atai just absolutely amazing guy Uh, uh, Immigrant, uh, PhD, just spectacular, but very humble. Uh, Worked with two other co-founders of his. And when I met him, I just worked from first principles. We had a meeting at Elise Cafe. I still remember when I was working a few blocks from here on 500 I'm actually in the same building that Omada Health is headquartered, but I was in the basement. (laughs) I had a desk in the basement. I was paying 500 bucks a month. That was only five years ago. Sometimes people would laugh when they came down. But actually, believe it or not, Gwen, they had a recording studio like this oh, down wow. there as well because we were subleasing from a company called Eleven, which is a marketing firm. So it was, it was actually equally dark. There was like one or two windows. But I went, so, so not, to not depress my entrepreneurs, I would sometimes meet with them at Illy's Cafe, which was right upstairs. So I met with Sun. And uh, he just explained to me what he was doing, molecular counting—to for their first product, correct for the amplification error, Mm -hmm. involved in library prep for next-gen sequencing. And of course, this is a space that I had some familiarity with. And I just asked him a series of questions, which is how I just mentally do it. I just Mm -hmm. organically go through 20, 30 questions in a span of 30 minutes, and I couldn't stump the guy. He just made, what what he said made sense to my simple mind that he was essentially correcting for a fundamental feature, which can be a problem for Mm next-gen sequencing, and in so doing, he was able to unlock something which the other mm-hmm. uh, salient NIPT companies were not. Mm-hmm. Again, keep in mind, NIPT is no longer a new field. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Ariosa, you had Natera, you had a lot of the pioneers in this space create the field. Uh, but they're only doing aneuploidy, or what's called trisomy, where you're looking for uh, basically an extra copy of the chromosome, chromosome mm-hmm. 13, 18, or 21, Edwards syndrome, Patow syndrome, or Down syndrome, or, or XY diseases. Obviously, it's easier to detect an extra copy of a fetal chromosome Mm -hmm. in the maternal blood than it is a single gene deletion, Mm -hmm. or error, and he's doing the latter. And to do that, you have to have extremely fine uh, uh, analytical uh, framework and an extremely fine sensitivity uh, and specificity of the test, which is what he he had innovated. So for me, just understanding, yes, 10 years from now, frankly, two years from now, everyone should be doing a blood test in the first trimester to see how their baby is doing Mm -hmm. and hopefully be able to drill down at the most uh, minute scale to figure out how to interrogate the genome of the fetus. Mm -hmm. And right now we're doing a very crude methodology that focuses on trisomy diseases and he was able to take it to the next level. Very easy decision. Uh, And we've supported him now in every single round since then.
1: I totally agree with you on sort of where the industry is going. Uh, So, IndieBio is part of SOSV. So, we also have a a hardware accelerator called Hacks. Yes. And so, I get to see the intersection of hardware, uh, bio, and now machine learning and big data. And so, with the combination of these three, you know, I, I feel like the cost of a lot, not just sequencing, but data analysis and image recognition. You know, we're we're going to be able to do um, a lot of these screening that used to cost half a million dollars at you know, five, maybe $10,000, hopefully, mm-hmm. going forward. Um, the other sort of piece of data that really inspires me is Craig Venter uh, created um, an artificial bacteria, ba- I think, concluding in 2010. Correct, and yeah. Uh, yeah, he hired 20 of his uh, closest friends was for, I think, $40 million total. Wow. Uh, it took 10 years. And there were two uh, Swiss brothers that did this uh, last year mm. for $110,000.
0: Exactly. Mm. That, that was core to my thesis in starting yeah. the fund was, and by the way, IndieBio as an institution uh, was featured on my, my fundraising deck to my investors. And Craig Venter's minimum kind of viable organism and bacterial construct was also on my deck as I pointed out to my investors, who I'm very fortunate to have that enabled me to do what I do, uh, where biology is coming from. I actually have a, a slide in my deck where I, start with you know the origin of the species move mm-hmm. through to mendel mendelian genetics and you'd be shocked it's only 150 years i mean it's like yeah. this is a young field yep. and to have gone from the understanding of just basic uh, evolution mm-hmm. and uh, darwin's theories to where we are today it's rapidly accelerating now yep. i think we actually have two portfolio companies with hacks i think yep. uh, one of our portfolio companies which was our fourth exit that we're fortunate to have in the fund. Kit, that was acquired two weeks ago by Roe. I think it was one of your, I think Hacks was involved as an investor, if I'm not mistaken. And Pillow Health might have also been a Hacks company, which was acquired by Stanley Black & Decker. That was our third in, uh, acquisition, both in the last 12 months. So, yeah, yeah, you, you guys see, bring some good vibes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see why Shahram is our inaugural VC guest here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, We don't talk
0: about our failures. No. <laughs> We certainly have. By the way, I don't consider it. If a company shuts down, I don't really consider that a failure. I think it's a failure if the founders and the investors don't learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. Shutting down a company is an organic process mm-hmm. involved in entrepreneurship, and everyone should celebrate mm-hmm. Um that outcome as mm-hmm. as much as they celebrate the financially lucrative ones. But failure is if an entrepreneur succeeds and becomes a billionaire and doesn't maintain her humility mm-hmm. and doesn't give back to her community. Failure is if an entrepreneur has to shut down something uh, but doesn't take care of their employees in mm-hmm. doing so. Failure is if someone engages in malice towards others. That's yeah. what I consider failure and and learning and going through chapters in your life, whether mm-hmm. it's opening the chapter for I don't know, uh, buying a home uh, or marriage or having a child or starting a company. Mm -hmm. These are chapters in one's life. Mm -hmm. Um, One should not view something as a failure unless you fail to learn from it. That's cheesy, but actually I I literally live by that rule. I've certainly had setbacks in my career and I always use them as fertilizer for future success and growth. And I make it a point, like if anything happens in my career that that I consider to be difficult, I'll sit and I'll read books about it, I'll try to Mm -hmm. understand myself better, understand what happened better, uh, just to center myself and be able to succeed where I might have uh, fallen before. And I, I tell my entrepreneurs the same thing. By the way, Gwen, the flip side of that is responsibility and accountability. Mm-hmm. So I don't let people off the hook easily. Just because I celebrate your learning uh, doesn't mean that we're gonna you know, celebrate a lack of accountability. Yep. And what I mean by that is, I think you made an allusion earlier to where we are in the funding cycle mm-hmm. in the world today. There's so much capital out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, one could call it smart money. Some of it is less smart money, but there's no there's no shortage of capital. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It means that if you're an entrepreneur and you're not raising money, guess whose fault that is, mm-hmm. right? Look in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, it's not my fault. It's not X, Y, and Z. If if the money is out there, uh, we're fortunate to live in an era where there is very high awareness of equity issues. Mm-hmm. And so there are funds dedicated to solving for that. Not enough in my view, but there are more and more. Mm-hmm. We're making our effort. We have interns that we, uh, we specifically take to help uh, communities that we think are underrepresented in our, mm-hmm. in our sector. Um, but if you're coming out of a top school with a PhD and you can't raise capital, it's not because it's not there. It's because either one, you're not communicating your vision mm-hmm. correctly or optimally or two, maybe you haven't found product market fit, mm-hmm. uh, but it's ultimately on you. And so the mm-hmm. flip side of humility is extreme accountability. And yep. here I have to say I'm kind of of one school of thought with the Ray Dalios of the world in his book Principles and others where I believe in radical transparency in a polite fashion, but I believe in being very honest with people. I think we're one of the few investors that on first calls with um, Entrepreneurs will tell them what I actually think. Wow. Yeah, I don't, but I try not to do it in a way that would be demoralizing. Mm-hmm. I try to do it in a way that will be didactic mm-hmm. and help that entrepreneur succeed because you're not helping her if you don't tell her, you know, what what is a fundamental flaw, at least in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. By the way, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't show you my anti portfolio. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very successful anti portfolio that I have, right? Companies that I've missed. But insofar as I may view something as, being a deficiency with the current business plan, it's my obligation to surface that to the entrepreneur and let her make a decision. Yeah. But just to have a meeting with someone and to kind of pass and not say anything is not as fair to them. Yeah. We don't always explain our passes because you know at some point people get defensive. But if we see something obvious, we'll just say it in the meeting, yeah, and hopefully we make a difference.
1: I really yeah, I really like your approach on this. Um, and to to your point about type one error and type two errors. I think the type two errors hurt a lot more because I, I keep a list as well. <laughs> yeah, all the money I could have made. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And I totally agree with you on uh, sort of accountability, right? Yeah. Is that as investors, it's our job to be slightly more honest with our portfolio companies than you know future investors, right? Is that you know uh, the future pitch events, those VCs may not be as honest with our founders, so it's our job to be honest with them right now. And one of the things I feel strongly about is I always tell founders, you know, you can always tell me I'm wrong. Right? Right, just bring data, bring logic. I'll agree with you. Yeah. Um, but you know, until then, let's agree on a plan and let's execute.
0: <laughs> well, you guys, you have a very difficult job at IndieBio because, and I remember when Ryan and uh, Ryan Bethencourt and Ron Shigeta were running it. I remember when Arvin was there, and they all did kind of amazing work, just mentoring the founders and helping them you know, understand what payroll is, mm-hmm. and understand how to communicate with investors. Yeah. Without you guys, we couldn't do our job. Uh, we, we need you in the ecosystem to help, and it's a lot of hard work, so my hat's off to you guys.
1: Yeah, we're definitely at top of the funnel. Uh, I was just talking to a founder uh, this week, and I told him, you know, uh, there are these youtube videos where you have to explain the same concept of a five-year-old to a high school student to mm. uh, a postdoc right mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so those are really the three pitches that you need to have especially yeah. when you're pitching a biotech company so true so last question um mm-hmm. i know you you and i both share an interest in machine learning ai um you know there it was definitely overhyped <laughs> a few years ago probably still now um, I sort of see it as electricity, right? Electricity on its own doesn't, yeah. isn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. It's how do you use it, right? Exactly. And so what's your, what's your view on how to invest in this, right? Given that you can't really patent an algorithm, you need a lot of data, and so do you invest in the data part? Do you invest, you know, how do you play this?
0: Very good question, Gwen. You're, you're a true venture capitalist <laughs> even asking these questions. So I, I had a very influential college professor, uh, Professor Gary Smith who's an economist uh, at Pomona College, where I went to school. And he worked under uh, Tobin, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. And I, I remember s- I remember so specifically, did you know Tobin?
1: Uh, I went to Yale. You so went to Yale, was... of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he went to Yale to yep. get his PhD. And Gary Smith has become very prolific recently. He's written, I think a dozen books, half a mm-hmm. dozen books, just on the idea of black box algorithms. Mm-hmm. And so I remember this from college when I graduated in 96 from Pomona where we we through the statistics class that I took with him and the economics class and the portfolio evaluation really inculcated in us the idea that garbage in, garbage out. Totally. You know, as Mark Twain said, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. And mm-hmm. what is machine learning and AI, but just an advanced, more advanced uh, way of looking at computer science, looking at data science obviously, you know, mm-hmm. has corollaries with statistics. And I think there are a lot of pitfalls here. So first of all, we never fell in the trap, I'd like to say, of investing in AI and ML because it sounded exciting. I've always been one of the few people, I think, in in our investment sector that promotes the idea of biology being first and foremost in the investment thesis and the AI and ML informing it Mm -hmm. and being, I don't want to say a feature, but maybe part of the platform, maybe Mm -hmm. part of the... The, the foundation for it but mm-hmm. not like the thing you're investing in mm-hmm. because first of all you're right you can't really patent it
1: mm-hmm.
0: you wouldn't want to patent ai unless you're patenting how to create an ai because insofar as you're publishing a patent which you have to eventually yeah. you don't want to give away your algorithms that's the whole secret sauce so generally it's defended as a trade secret and when we look at companies that you know and we saw a lot of these over the last four or five years yep. we're doing ml for this ai for that my first question is okay but but where does that really get you? So AI for diagnostics, so what? Mm-hmm. Why am I better off applying machine learning to colorectal cancer detection as opposed to some novel biology and markers? Mm-hmm. Combined with informatics, mm-hmm. chemo or bioinformatics, why is that an inferior or superior approach? You have to justify it. Mm-hmm. Using the word AI and ML, just because VCs are writing blogs about it, means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus is the product, yeah. and what the path is for that product to impact lives, mm-hmm. and w- how the software fits into that. So NextBio, the company we discussed Mm -hmm. earlier, um, that I was fortunate to be an early executive in, was an ML-based software-based informatics platform analyzing genomics and genetics information, Mm -hmm. when that really wasn't even a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I won't mention who, but the CEO of, if not the most prominent, one of the top two most prominent companies in the sequencing space, met with us, and he was looking at an iPad, calculating numbers, uh, on the genetic information that we had. And he, and he was asking, you know, is this happening on the device? You know, wow. everything we had was cloud computing. We had hundreds of servers. So we were the, one of the first companies to do that. Mm-hmm. And back then, the ML was not used as a term of art the way it is today in 2004 and five. Mm-hmm. So we used the next best thing. We called it a search engine for genetic information. Oh, wow. But of course, what underlined it was the uh, the platform, which was based on ML and AI, so I always view it as just software. And I'm, yeah. and and I think probably like yourself, I took software classes when I was in high school. I programmed a little bit, didn't really get anywhere with it, but you know, I'm I was conversant enough to understand it and I've now run two software companies, Graphdive and nice. NextBio. So I have a, a pretty deep understanding, I hope, or, or, or deep enough, mm-hmm. as a former executive running these companies of what it actually is, You know, hiring and working with my CTO and VP of engineering. So I'm not dazzled by someone mentioning mm-hmm. things, or or if someone claims to be an expert in AI and they say, this guy's really smart, okay? So I mean, what, is, what does that have to do with the end market we're in? And I think that's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't just ordinary software. This is healthcare. Mm-hmm. This is the life sciences, and it's different.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's one of the key differences between um, application of AI ML to life sciences versus other sectors. Is that you know certain sectors you you can give them a black box and they'll take the answer. Whereas right. when you're diagnosing the health, you know it's a it's a cancer diagnosis or where the right. tumor is or what's the next step. No doctor is going to take the culpability of, you know, well, this is just what the black box told us to do. Right. right. And and so- if,
0: exactly. Gwen, and just to, to close a circle on my thinking, I realized I digress. Gary Smith has written now many articles and books over the last two years. Well, mm-hmm. uh, certainly many articles, I think a few books on this idea of these black box pattern-fitting ML platforms. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to scrutinize, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. when you're looking at a company that claims to be doing X, Y, and Z. We try our best to scrutinize it and say, well, how do we know you're not pattern-fitting? Show mm-hmm. us your data sets, show us your models. But even then, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. I think there are very smart investors out there like Vijay Panda, and Dendresen, mm-hmm. who is someone that I admire He's a, uh, and I've enjoyed uh, interacting with. That actually do look at source code. I think because he has mm-hmm. that specific expertise. I do not. Uh, we have advisors that do that for us. Mm-hmm. But that's what you have to do to really scrutinize yep. and interrogate whether that's the worthwhile platform. Um, and this is not to say that AI and ML aren't pivotal, transformational technologies. Obviously, they are. Mm-hmm. Reading a book now on AI taking over the world, which is pretty scary. But it's just, and by the way, what, what Grail is doing, what Thrive is doing with respect to screening of cancer, right. looking at methylation markers, uh, large da- sample sets of tens of thousands of mm-hmm. individuals, that's not something that a startup can readily recapitulate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that you have to have the resources of a billion dollars of funding, which Grail did, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And in fact, the head of Grail's AI and ML is my good friend and my VP of engineering and CTO at Next Bio. So I'm very familiar with what they do, and they're absolutely world-class at it. Mm-hmm very difficult for us to fund a company to compete against that billion in funding. So we try to find uh, sweet spots. For example, our company Foresight out of Stanford Mm -hmm. that we sponsored, um, where it's not just AI and ML Mm brute forced against all the data you can gather from tens of thousands of patients, but rather Mm -hmm. a novel discovery in biology. Mm -hmm. In this case, um, the biology is being published in the next uh, couple of weeks, I believe. Combined with ML and or informatics, or just software, depending on the flavor, combined with novel microscopy in some cases, or devices, or there are many elements to it. Um, And for us, we take that multi-element approach in evaluating these companies.
1: Got it. Super cool. Uh, The two things that I use to sort of stress test uh, uh, ML claims is definitely, you know, ask for the code and compile it yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, number two is... Uh, ask for, you know, what's the, they usually have, you know, any, anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 data points. Ask for what's the next stepwise function for an improvement in your algorithm, right? And sometimes it'll be, you know, 500,000 data points or something. So wow. it's not linear. And the third thing is ask the, the CTO, how do you break your code? Like, what are the different ways that you can break, um, mm-hmm. you know, your predictions? And if the answer is, you know, oh, there's no way you can break it, it's never correct.
0: (laughs) Amazing, yeah. Yeah. I think that's an amazing way to approach it.
1: Yeah, cool. This has been a great conversation. Um, I may bug you for more ideas on who to interview because the the ones that you named, I may not be able to get this (laughs) year, but I I will keep working on it.
0: Well, if you're asking me for good people to interview, uh, generally in our sector, there's so many, it's hard to have, uh, it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, But we have so much respect for our colleagues that we worked with and co-invested with. that i would just say do all of them and I, I uh, eventually <laughs> you know all the all the all the great ones yeah awesome and thank you for starting with me uh, i really appreciate it
1: thank you so much